Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. And once again during the talking points, the subject of equine welfare came up. And wherever you are in the world, this is the most pertinent subject in racing at the moment, whether it be Santa Anita and the scrutiny in Californian racing, whether it be the horses scratched before the Melbourne Cup that we spoke about with Huey Morrison a few weeks ago, whether it be about parties putting in their manifestos just weeks ahead of the general election that racing needs an independent welfare and regulatory body without the borders of the sport. It just goes to show you that the sport is constantly under threat and that horses need to be looked after as best possible. Yet, within that, there are always going to be divisions between the sports regulators around the world and the practitioners. And somehow, the twain have to meet to agree the best way forward. And with that in mind, my special guest this week is an eminent veterinarian who's practised across the world and is now a partner at the deeply respected Rossdale's veterinary practice in Newmarket and has been uh, for a couple of decades now. He's a pioneer in his field. He has published uh, eminent uh, work on the subject. He is Pete Ramsden. Pete, good morning. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for the introduction. I, I liked your tweet, forthright, which usually means it's code for mouthy. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's good to be on. Um, it's not usually the place for a vet to step out of private practice and, and come into the public sphere. But, mm. um, yeah, thank you for the invitation. But I think more and more... And certainly from what I've experienced in, in the US and, and anecdotally from, from Australia, mm. the veterinary community is having to come out mm. more and more and mm -hmm. talk and explain yeah. and talk people through things that would have been either anathema to them 10 years mm. ago or actually just not that interesting to them. Yeah, yeah. People are interested yeah, in absolutely. what you do, aren't they? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it's difficult for the public to... And the public, some of these issues are things that even the experts um, spend a long time debating and have nuanced views on, but... Uh, you know, it's difficult to get across all points to the public. The public have a great thirst for, for knowledge in this area, and, and in the States they do it particularly well. They have, some of those vets have become very mm. prominent figures in the public eye, and that's needed, you know, particularly when you're dealing with situations like injuries on, on you know, on, on race day. So would you like to see a bit more of that here? I know ITV experimented with it for a little while, so mm. having an almost almost resident vet. What do you think the right balance to strike oh, God. is? I mean, I personally, I... Dread being involved, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure, and uh, uh, but I think maybe it should be considered. I, I think um, I think certainly there needs to be a more uh, constructive and cohesive way for um, uh, racing vets or vets that um, are at the front line um, and represent trainers um, and and really are the experts in their field to interact with both the regular regulator and the, and the public. I mean, I think that needs to happen in the past. It's been, you know, we'll get a phone call from the racing post or something for a quote, you know, from an individual veterinary surgeon to quote on a big issue. And I think there's a, probably a better way forward than, than what we've been doing so far, you know. How, as you see it now, November 2019... Mm. How good a job do you think the BHA does in regulating the sport from a veterinary perspective? Um, the, the problem, I mean, I think we're all used to, particularly in this country, um, uh, people who govern us are not particularly uh, good at some things. And we're all used to um, bumps on the road with regulations that come in that are flawed. And, and we have, a you know, people aren't always aware, but there's always a, a, a low-level sort of... Um, 
background conversation that we have with the BHA to tweak some of these rules to make them fit for purpose. Um, and we're all used to those sorts of things. Uh, there, are, there are some, when big issues arise, um, and, and some of the big issues that have arisen, um, you know, in the recent period, um, speak to the fact that the BHA haven't consulted properly with the veterinary community. Now, they have a BHA veterinary committee, but I think if you were to ask both present and past members of that committee how that consultation process goes, there's there's a general feeling that the BHA don't um, seek consultation, meaningful consultation most of the time, and when they do, often that consultation is with a group of people who don't then have the time or necessarily the contacts to to feed out to the, the industry at large. And I think that can be improved, and and that's better for all of us. That's better for not not just us as practicing vets and trainers, and and for equine welfare. But that's better for for the BHA, you know, to have these things that could brew into legal spats mm-hmm. is regrettable. You know, no one wants to see things like that go go onto the front pages of newspapers. Because you, as, as I was to say, as a frontline vet, someone mm. who's working closely with trainers, have an incredibly important role, I'm guessing, to, uh, to almost be the, the link between mm. the sort mm. of veterinary authorities and, and your clients. Yet, understandably, the BHA would be suspicious of involving yeah. that link too much because sure. you've got a vested interest. Yeah, it's true. And, and you could say um, it's quite right for the regulator, and, and this is why there are independent um, members of boards both within the veterinary world and in the regulatory world and in the medical world. Um, you can't be seen to be too close or in bed with, with the vets that are treating these animals, and I can understand that, particularly when betting's involved. Um, but we're in a very small industry. You know, you have to rely on veterinary ethics, and, and you know, as a member of a very large practice... Um, we confront these things all the time. You know, it's currently sales season and I might be asked to vet a horse that's been looked after by one of my colleagues who, you know, has looked out after it for, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and that information security, that all comes down to professional integrity. And I think, uh, you know, for the, not just the BHA, but, but worldwide, the, the regulators, I think, have to recognise that the the bulk of expertise in a lot of these areas, so, you know, the pertinent things at the moment are are, um, risk analysis for fracture. You know, the bulk of expertise is in the private sector. It's not in the regulatory sector. You would never think to fill a conference um, list of speakers looking into risk assessment of the thoroughbred fetlock with people from the regulatory world. You know, the, the, the experts are in the private field, and unless you engage with those people... You know, there needs to be a meeting, like you say, between the regulatory side and the clinical side because, you know, together we can work on these problems very well, but, but apart it just becomes lobbing hand grenades at each other, as one of my trainers puts it. So. And I know in, in many respects you are, you know, you want some conciliation here, mm. but you've, you've tossed a couple of social media grenades in the, sure. in the direction of the, sure. of, of the regulator just to... Just to mm. Uh, out of frustration. Yeah, I'm yeah, guessing. It, it is out of frustration. Yeah. When we when we had the the flu situation, mm. the equine flu situation mm. at the beginning of the year, which which shut down racing, mm. you were really quite mm. um, outspoken on on the way the BHA handled that. Now, mm. looking back retrospectively, do you think ultimately they did their job okay? Uh, look, it's a tough call, and they had to make a decision very rapidly. Um, and and I 
in a way, I, I don't want to dwell on the past, mm. and, and um, I think there's a lot to, we need to deal, confront with the future, but sure. looking back at the flu, I still maintain, and, and it, I would say it's the majority opinion, not just amongst new market vets, but amongst the wider um, worldwide thoroughbred um, veterinary community, that shutting down racing was the wrong thing to have done. Um, you know, it's the best vaccinated population of horses in the world and the whole reason vaccination was brought in was to prevent a loss of racing days and also some of the things that followed on from the, the you know the swabbing process and the quarantine when you actually dig down into you know I don't want to go into details but when you dig down into it there was clearly a recognition that maybe the BHA had bitten off more than they could chew and let things simmer down and 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 disappear and as it turns you know in the middle of the crisis none of us knew whether we were going to face a year of coughing horses and poor performing yards and whatever, that was all potentially in front of us. But and no looking, racing. And no racing, yeah, potentially going on and on and on. And, and um, you know, it's an endemic disease and, and we're all used to, you know, those of us who are getting long enough in the tooth to have experienced previous outbreaks of respiratory problems, including flu, knew that we were probably due another one. And as it turns out, looking back with hindsight at the season, Newmarket has been a very healthy set of yards. I mean, it, it, it's been one of the healthiest years for, you know, for the last decade. So it hasn't turned into a, a you know, and, and the BHA may say, well, we shut it down. And, you know, that that was the result. But actually, when you look at the scientific basis of or the scientific follow through of the the swabbing and quarantine procedures, no, I, I still maintain my position. That, the, that we should have carried on. Yeah, that's my position. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And not just mine. You know, I'm not a lone voice. I know I'm the lone voice on Twitter, but it is that I was getting a lot of support from very eminent uh, veterinary surgeons around the around the world, really. Looking at the, the Marmello case that you alluded mm. to there mm, in mm. terms of pre-race scanning, how big an issue could this become for racing internationally? Well, I think this this is really the big thing going forward. So, you know, all the, you know, even the flu thing pales into insignificance, um, in my view. Um, the regulators are under huge pressure to prevent race race day injury. I mean, in a way, the foot. I mean, going back to animal welfare. I mean, I'm very much a person who believes that the way an animal lives is more important than how it dies. And a, you know, a racetrack fatality is not necessarily, if you view it through an ethical perspective, is not necessarily a, a huge welfare problem. Problem. It's terrible for connections. It's obviously terrible for the horse, and, um, and, and it can be visually shocking. Visually shocking. The, so the it's bad and the, the for the imagery sport. and the absolutely. optics. Are, are absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. We agree on all of those things, but um, you cannot have an attitude that even one fracture is too many with racing, because you cannot prevent all fractures, and you can't prevent horses breaking legs when they gallop around a paddock at home when they're turned out. And um, you know what we need to do is minimise serious injury and we've made great strides in that but there's still more work to do I think there should be a very positive message you know Britain particularly I get to travel around the world and see the way um, other jurisdictions operate and the way other vets work in their yards and I always come back to Britain and think god we've got it really spot on here you know we've got um, you know it's no longer sort of James Herriot days it's you know of course that exists and I've worked in the West Country but um, you know, people driving around one-man bands does exist, but the majority of racehorses in Britain are cared for by multidisciplinary teams of, of experts in their field and people who are more likely to be 
reading journal papers at night and going to conferences than you know down the pub. So you know the the you know the fact is we look after our racehorses in Britain very well and we've got quite a low injury rate um, worldwide, but that can be improved I think with some sensible measures long term. I I just want to dig down into this pre-race scanning, this mm. pre-race scanning mm-hmm. situation that saw the uh, the removal of Marmello and, and Red Verdon sure. and a horse from Charlie Appleby's stable all taken mm. out of the Melbourne Cup mm-hmm. by veterinary officials yeah. rather than yeah. veterinary surgeons, although yeah. at the sharp end, if you like. Huey came on the programme and mm-hmm. sure. you could see he was, he was pretty mortified by the whole situation. Was he right to be, do you think? Yeah, yeah. so uh, in preparation for this, I've had the opportunity to speak to both Huey and to Ed Dunlop. Um, both of which, uh, particularly Huey, has been able to give me full access. He, he gave me full access to the veterinary records and the, you know, all the, all the subsequent information and reports um, relating to his horse. So I've gone through those. Um, I mean, it, it it is clearly the case that um, that Marmello um, should not, with hindsight, have been scratched from the cup. I mean, it, it's clearly the case. So the horse subsequently had an MRI scan. So he mm-hmm. underwent a CT scan with their new scanner um, at Melbourne. Um, and then he was scratched and he had an MRI scan. And those images have been viewed by experts, international experts in their field. And the findings from the CT um, machine scan that was done that scratched him yep. are not corroborated by the MRI. And And it has to be said that it, it it could be viewed, you know, in the public sphere, this spat could be viewed as the horse had an injury and now there's a slightly lofty academic um, dispute between experts here yes. and in Australia yes. and wherever about whether the horse should have run or what the prognosis is. But um, I cannot say more firmly that um, that's not the case. So the horse... Um, the horse had findings, so the CT machine in Melbourne um, is, this technology has been coming on and everyone's been looking forward to it very much. Um, and however, it shows great, in great architectural detail the fetlock of the thoroughbred. Um, what is important is the activity relating to some of those findings that you see architecturally. And currently the only way to do that and the best way to do that, the gold standard way to do that, is to assess the fetlock with an MRI machine. Now we've got great depth of knowledge of, uh, I mean, cases like Marmello seem to hit the public, you know, the public Mm. sphere every once in a while in a blue moon. But these cases are going through private practice decision making all the time, you know, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. So... There's a great depth of knowledge around risk assessing these fetlocks using extra clinical acumen, X-ray, MRI. Um, you know, many hundreds of horses have gone just through our unit alone of similar cases. So, um, with hindsight, it's quite apparent that the the changes that they found on the CT machine, on the CT scan in Melbourne with Marmello, had you scanned the entire field, you would have found a majority of the horses in that field would have had changes of a similar pattern to what was found in Marmello and resulted in scratching if you had just used CT. So 
we haven't got enough evidence, is what you're saying at the moment, in terms of using this CT mm. scanner to use it as a diagnostic tool to determine whether horses should be scratched or not. Is yeah. that your view? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, look, it's exciting technology, and I can see that... Um, but you it, know, in the but face it, are you, of the are, you saying, are you saying it's, it's exciting technology, but it's not ready for use oh, yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so... So if you look at uh, the California example, they've now got a PET scan. So yes. I'm confusing everyone with all the different technologies, but they're, they're working on... They're, they're going to install an MRI scanner finally, you know, which is behind time probably, but is a great thing. They're, they're also um, developing a PET scanner, which is just up and running now, and they've stated... I don't know how they're going to do it, but they've stated they're going to run alongside their other diagnostics for a year or for a certain defined period and learn from it before mm-hmm. incorporating it into regulatory decision-making, and I think that would have been the right approach in Melbourne. Um, the trouble is, with a CT scan, you can't tell whether something's old, new, developing, you know, ongoing. So, I mean, the appraisal, and I, and I, I mean, I have to reiterate, the appraisal of Marmello subsequent to his scratching tells us that he's at no greater risk of fracture than any other horse in that field. And indeed, the advice was then to carry on training him you know, up to the trainer, but don't modify your training program, mm. don't modify your race targets. Um, and I also, you know, I think I'm right in saying the horse galloped two or three days after he was scratched in front of Racing Victoria Vets. So ah, it, it should have been incorporated into a research program, or at the very least, if they had used it as a screening tool, then an MRI eye scan to follow on to, to yeah. analyse the findings. I, I, I entirely understand your point and, and I entirely understand what Huey was saying the other day. So where, where are we going with this? Does it worry you that diagnostic tools that haven't had a proper research base mm. are going to be used to determine the partition, participation of horses globally? Yeah. And we're going to end up with horses being scratched left, right and centre yeah. and the overarching body will say, do you know what? We'll cope. We can cope with that mm. because it's, we're not going to get a criticism if we take a horse yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. But if, if we see something on a scan and the horse goes and dies, then we're yeah. finished. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's the it's the safe decision to scratch a horse because you can never be proven wrong, can you? Whereas if you go out on a limb, and you wouldn't have been going out on a limb with but Marmello, where are we? Where but, does it end? Well, what really needs to happen? I mean, so many of these horses are travelling to two or three different jurisdictions during their careers and. What needs to happen is there needs to be an international consensus, an international panel to decide on the tricky cases. Now, it's very nuanced and there's no easy answer and it's likely, it's unlikely that there will be an easy answer in the near future about how to risk assess a thoroughbred for risk of fracture during an upcoming race. I mean, it's really tricky. It doesn't just come down to lameness on race day or the week before race day. But there needs to be at least, it shouldn't be beyond the wit of man or woman to get together some sort of international panel to agree on criteria mm-hmm. about when a horse undergoes a, an advanced imaging technique, what that technique is, and then, you know, in this day of digital images, it's easy to ping images around the world and get opinions from, from the experts, rather than those decisions being made by regulatory vets who, with all due respect, you know, they're under pressure. It's not fair on them to be put, you know, in the spotlight to make these decisions, and they're not qualified to do so. I mean, there are only a small handful of people in the world that that can make those decisions based on some of these advanced imaging techniques. Why can a horse racing authority mm. not hire somebody with the experience mm. and with the expertise to be able to make 
proper judgment calls on this? Is yeah. it because they simply can't afford them? No, I wouldn't have thought so. Not at all. No, that that wouldn't be. No, I I don't know. You'd have to ask them. But is that know, these, something you'd favour? Absolutely. But I mean, these these experts don't come with huge expense tags. I mean, they, they offer opinions on, you know, this is something they're doing on a weekly basis, reviewing images such as this. And, you know, for a matter of a few hundred pounds, not for, you know, big money. So, so I don't know whether it's been considered by racing authorities, but it certainly should be, you know, to, to adjudicate on these tricky cases. Now, you know, say again, Marmelo, in my view, wasn't really a tricky case. Here, I mean... You know, he wouldn't have been considered a tricky case in my own caseload. Um, but for the ones that truly are, and, you know, we turned to Santa Anita, and, and I tweeted after after the horse uh, had broken down. But I'd seen that horse a week before and was discussing it with colleagues on social media. You're talking about Mongolian Group yeah. and the Breeders' Cup. Yeah, and so that horse was lame um, leading into the race. And obviously... You know, one doesn't want to step into something. You know, I'm on the other side of the world, and and you've seen a piece of video, yeah, on and and iPhone, yeah, and high performing animals at that level are often scratchy, just like human athletes. You know, they they have ongoing orthopedic issues, um, and so to make a pass a comment on a horse's action leading into the race would have been wrong. But now, with hindsight, we know what he injured, and you know, it, it, it's quite clear that something was missed. But um, yeah, there's, uh, we all need to come together on this to work, work on it because we don't have much time to get it right. The problem with the marmellows of this world is they then go home or they go on to their next target and they've got a black mark against them and, and presumably also insurance underwriters are looking askance at them as well and, and that can have massive knock-on effects. You know, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing will be the BHA's response because the easy thing to do would be to back up the Racing Victoria um, decision, as I say, you can't be proven wrong mm. if you if you scratch a horse or keep it from racing, and that's the na- that would be the natural course of action. You would think, you know, support your colleagues in in another jurisdiction, but with the evidence that's emerged subsequently, there's nothing to stop, in my view, and the view of the experts who've been involved in this. There's nothing to stop that horse being entered for a race tomorrow under, under, under BHA rules. So, you know, it, it's tricky, isn't it? Uh, that's why we all need to come together and have a, have a proper, um, proper discussion about this and, and a way forward because you can't have horses going to one part of the world being knocked and then, they're, you know, potentially their stallion careers, certainly their sort of value insurance particulars, the next race they go to they might be, might be banned from. So... The implications are massive, huge, yeah, huge. And do you sometimes look at the racing here and think, well, we spend our entire winter jump racing towards Cheltenham, which within it mm. itself has mm. a huge amount of yeah, sure. inherent risk. Yeah. And where is the future for that if we're becoming so risk averse because we feel we have to be risk averse yeah. because there's so much pressure being applied by external forces? I, that's why I think we have to... It, it's. Of course, we've got to get our house in order, and we're making great strides. And the BHA, despite my comments here, you know, you know, do a great job. They're really pushing the animal welfare thing. And I, I think sometimes, a little bit too much. You know, the animal welfare flag comes out for 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 a lot of um, things that they they try to defend. Um, but we should take a positive message 
out to the world that we can do a lot. We can, you know, at a grassroots level, we can educate vets who look after horses in yards and um, vets who look after horses at the track and um, improve our screening processes. But also that horses in this country are looked after incredibly well. And to tie ourselves in, up in knots about um, fatality rates when actually fatality rates are pretty good and by and large falling if you look at the, you know, the longer term trends. Um, you know, some of the same people that would be very keen to um, ban racing or at least restrict it so much that we'd find it difficult to function are quite happy to have a little fat pony out the back for their kids that spends a month, a year off its feet because of laminitis. You know, you know what's the bigger welfare issue? And I think we have to be robust and show the processes that we've got in place to look after our racehorses improve the bits that need improving, um, but take the message out that actually, you know, we've got it pretty, pretty right in terms of veterinary care race horses in this, in this country. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.